Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts, and I have uh, with me today David Brooks, New York Times columnist and author of many, many, many books. Today we'll be talking a lot about his uh, new book called The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. Uh, David, uh, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today on Signposts. It's a pleasure and honor to be with you. I read everything you write watch you every week on PBS NewsHour, the Shields and Brook segment on uh, on Fridays. But this book was different for me because it was very personal uh, as I was reading it. I, I felt as though you were in many cases kind of looking into my life. <laughs> so it was kind of, <laughs> kind of uncomfortable as I was going through it because some of the things that you were talking about uh, working through and explaining were things that – I had gone through in recent years, and I remember thinking to myself, why didn't anyone tell me about this ahead of time, the, the way that you would with, say, puberty or, or some other big life, life stage? Uh, but when you're talking about this first and second mountain, why, why don't you explain what you mean by that first? Yeah. First, when you were speaking, I'm reminded of the saying, you can be uh, knowledgeable with other men's knowledge, but you can't be wise with other men's wisdom. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you have to go through things yeah. yourself. And so a lot of pe- of us get out of school and we decide we're gonna, what mountain we're going to climb. And it's usually evolved around the profession. We're going to try to make a mark on the world. Uh, and we're going to try to just make an identity. Yeah. And when we're on our first mountain, we're shooting for what our culture tells us to want, which is success and a good reputation. We spend a lot of time thinking about what other people think of us. And we climb that mountain. And one of three things happens. Some of us are lucky enough to succeed professionally, but then we find it wasn't all that satisfying. It, we've sort of been oversold mm. professional success or else we fail and we're not on that mountain or else something happens that wasn't part of the original plan. Sometimes it's a cancer scare or the death of a child, something horrible. But anyway, life throws us in the valley as it throws us all in the valley. Yeah. And when you're in the valley, you, you see deeper into yourself and you realize the desires of the first mountain are not really the best desires, but the desires of the heart and soul are actually what you really want. And when you're ready when you make that realization deep inside yourself, you're ready for a bigger, larger life, and that's the second mountain. Mm. You talked about at one point in the book, and I really resonated with this, about the uh, sort of the shadow side of meritocracy, which, uh, which, which I would say is not just about uh, people achieving in, uh, in spectacular ways in careers, but also just as an evangelical Christian, a lot of the – uh, sort of Sunday school, gold star, do everything you're supposed to do uh, sort of kids uh, that a lot of us were, that often that ends up with a sort of comparison with other people and a sense of my worth and my value only comes in terms of how much I perform and how much I'm, I'm valued and how much I'm, I'm useful. I think that is everywhere, and not just in elite circles, but, but all over the place. In American life. Right yeah, now. no, I, I agree. I mean, the meritocracy has given us a lot of good achievements. It's mm-hmm. built a pretty good society, but there are some lies embedded in it. The one is the one I just mentioned that career success can make you feel fulfilled. 
Mm-hmm. But the second and more subtler ones are things like, I can make myself happy. If only I achieve a little more or lose 15 pounds or get really good at yoga, then I can be happy. And that's the lie of self-sufficiency. Uh, but we all know that when people are on their deathbed, when they point to their happiest moments and when they, it's when they defeated self-sufficiently, when they were utterly dependent on somebody else or their God and yeah. somebody else was utterly dependent on them. And then the thing I see a lot is conditional love. I see a lot of people who think I can earn love and I'm worthy of love only when I've done performed in a certain way. And I see this in a lot of my college students that I teach that their parents love them, but their parents are anxious for them. And yeah. a lot of the time, if the kids do something, the parents do not think will lead to success the beam of love is withdrawn. And so the most fundamental relationship in their worldly life with their parents is, is uh, at risk. And those kids are often terrified. Yeah. Well, I see that a lot in local church life in terms of church leadership, pastors and and others. You mentioned at one point in the book about sometimes there's this, um, this struggle going on with staying in touch with, with what brought you to a particular place in the first place. There are all of these pressures, uh, and sometimes it seems as though someone's withdrawing when really they're just trying to get in touch with, with the, 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 very, uh, the very nature that, that propelled them to wherever they, they are at the moment. I see that a lot with church leaders, uh, with a sense of as their ministries start to grow in their communities, they lose touch with who they are, and they simply become the sum total of all of the, the things that they're contributing to the community or the uh, knowledge and wisdom that they're supposed to have or the oratorical gifts that they have, and it often leads to just complete collapse. I see people self-sabotaging and getting involved in you know, any number of things, from substance abuse to breaking their marriages up, all, all sorts of things happen, and often it seems as though these people are just trying to escape from the sort of web of responsibility they're in. And you can persuade yourself that each thing you're doing is for the larger good, it's for the church, it's for others, it's in service to God. But if it becomes sort of an addiction, uh, one of my uh, favorite definitions of sin is an infinite devotion to a finite thing. Mm. And sometimes we choose the finite thing, which is maybe people approving of us or um, service to some worldly institution or just service to that sense of, wow, look what a good person I am. Uh, I'm doing all this wonderful stuff for the community. Uh, And that's just an expansion of self, not a not a really surrender of self. Mm -hmm. And surrendering self um, is super hard when you're getting all this attention. And frankly, I struggle with it these weeks. I'm, you know, I had a book come out. This book came out about six weeks ago. And it is, you know, I quote Tim Keller in there that joy is found on the far side of sacrificial service, not on this side. Mm -hmm. And I believe that. But, you know, I check my Amazon ranking yeah. and I wonder how people like the book and and uh, the, the spirit I really got to enjoy while writing the book uh, gets lost as I'm trying to make the book succeed in the marketplace. Well, you even talk about in the book about when you first started at The New York Times about how disorienting it was to get all of the. I hate you <laughs> sort of uh, sort of uh, commentary, not just in the comment sections that we all know to avoid, but but emails and, and those sorts of things. I think a lot of people have to deal with that in much smaller ecosystems than, than where you did, especially people who are involved in various sorts of, of ministries. How did you work through that? Just, to, just in terms of the kind of the more public you become, uh, the more relentless uh, people are going to be in terms of their criticisms of you. Uh, so, so how do you yeah. how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, the shortest way is to insulate. Um, there are some people you just, uh, especially the online world, um, the people who do online commentary have two things. 
one, they're extremely good at reading your emotions. And two, they don't care if they hurt you. So they're not only cruel, they're effectively cruel because they can read you well. And this is true of people we know uh, in life as well. And then the second thing, the final thing was I really had to take at heart what we're taught, which is love your enemies. Mm. And I, I just had to, I had to understand the people who are criticizing me. And I think this is true in all our lives as somehow bringing us gifts. Mm. And it may be a gift that's wrapped in thorns, but if you look at it as a loving gift and maybe there's something you can draw from it, um, you just, you really can't respond with hatred or you really get consumed by it. And you would spend all your time thinking about the person who hurt you. Yeah. You mentioned in the book, and I went and looked it up, this uh, moment where uh, William F. Buckley was speaking on your campus and you had written a satire of him that was apparently very, very biting. And he took it with such good humor and stood up and said, if David Brooks is out here, I want to I want to give him a job. And that you weren't there because you were a college student on this panel of college students with the economist Milton Friedman. And you, you talk about being, a, at the time, socialist there with the, <laughs> you're the most uh, uh, the, 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 the sharpest mind of sort of libertarian economics in the, in the 20th century probably. And that there were these moments where you would be thinking, oh, no, I, I don't know what I'm going to say next. And I watched that. Just because you could sort of read that on your face at moments, even though you were holding your ground, but you could sort of see behind your eyes that you're you're thinking through, where am I going to go next? And I realized that's sort of very good preparation for life in terms of sitting <laughs> back and wondering, do I know what I'm talking about? <laughs> to be completely crushed in argument, yeah. <laughs> yeah, people can go on YouTube and if they type in Milton Friedman, David Brooks, the video pops up. And I've got, in those days, a big head of hair and I have these 1980s gigantic glasses that look like they're on loan from like the Mount Palomar Lunar Observatory, these gigantic <laughs> glasses. And, but, you know, I will say, um, after we had our, our discussions in on TV for the, this taping of these shows, um, Friedman took us out to dinner every night for about five or six nights in a row mm. and really showed what a teacher he is. Um, and he just, I'd never really met anybody who thought like him before I grew up in pretty progressive circles and it was, I never quite came to see the world the way he did, but I really had my mind expanded by someone who was just, who just wanted to teach you. Mm. Uh, and he was, he was a great mentor. And, and Buckley, to be fair, when I, he hired me eventually, I called him up three years later. And for 18 months, he was, a you know, almost a, a father figure to me, he invited me out yachting, which is the kind of stuff I'd never done before. And took me out to Bach concerts and really expanded my world. And when we think back on our lives, we think of the mentors yeah. who show us not only they show us what's worth wanting, even if it's hard. And I think when I think of the mentors that had the big effect on me, what the things they did was they said, this is not going to be easy. Mm. This will be intense, but it's worth wanting. This is worth loving. I found myself as I was reading your book initially sort of mentally arguing with you because you started talking about individualism as the besetting sin of our age. And, and I, I was thinking at first, well, no, it's really not. It's, it's conformity. It's, it's this hyper-collectivism that we see in political ideologies and, and online movements. And then as soon as, as soon as I would think that, you would turn around and then address it. And you talked about tribalism not being the, the other side uh, or, or the opposite of individualism, but this one line you used that, that stood out to me, tribalism is community for lonely narcissists. And I thought that's that's exactly descriptive of what we see going on, not, not just in political life, but religious life and, and everywhere else. 
is there a way out of that? How can right. we move to a different place when it seems to be getting worse? Yeah, you know, I've, you know, a lot of our problems are caused by social disconnection, alienation, loneliness, distrust. And we do what, um, when you're, we're, we're beset by these problems, um, we sort of reach out for community, but do it in a bad way. And community is, is mutual affection based on love. We love the same God. We love the same community. Tribalism is, is connection based on mutual hatred. We hate the same other. Mm. So it's always us, them, friend, enemy, distinctions, a feeling of feeling besieged. Uh, and so it's, a, it's, a, it's just a, a warrior mentality. And I think it's, that's what my politics is, that mm-hmm. the political world I cover every day is. And I think it, it has sometimes happened even within faith communities. Uh, my wife sometimes says that evangelicals stopped being a verb or an adjective and started becoming a noun. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the way you did faith, but it was a, a group you were a member of, a tribe you were a member of. Uh, and once you do that, then it becomes the siege mentality is easy to fall into. And some people will play on that siege mentality yeah. to, to justify any means. And I, I think that's that's just a, a, a dangerous way to live. And the way out of it is genuine relationship, which is based on mutual love. Uh, and somebody who is secure in genuine relationships doesn't feel the world is um, an evil, dark place that justify any attack. What's really difficult is when I look out, even just on, say, one issue, foster care, uh, I have a lot of success at enlisting churches to be involved with foster kids in their communities. But there are churches in Nashville and Denver and Minneapolis and places like that, often places that have the most need uh, for engagement when it comes to foster kids because of opioid crisis or, or other things. Those are the places where the churches themselves have, have broken down and often don't have the, the resources to be able to just keep themselves together. So it's almost an opposite of what people used to think of where you had rural communities that had strong faith and they were worried about their kids going off to the big city or to the university town and losing their faith. I'm finding it's often the opposite, that you have kids coming out of rural communities sometimes where the churches are gone or are struggling. And then they're finding they're finding faith in New York or Minneapolis or Austin or, or somewhere like that. How can at the local community level can that start to be reversed? If you have a community where there just isn't cohesive bonds at all, it's not about conserving them. It's just about they're not there. Right. No, I've I've been on, out in the country for the last three years finding this exact phenomenon that every, in some parts of the country every single bond, every sort of community bond has sort of been washed away. I was in. North Carolina, rural North Carolina recently, and there, was, there wasn't even a place you could gather in the town until somebody finally said, I'm going to start a coffee shop just so we can mm-hmm. have a place where we can gather. And so that is the problem. And I, I think there's there's some problem that's institutional, to be honest. Somebody made a good point to me recently that a lot of the Christian organizations for young people are geared very much toward college-going young people. Yes. And so if you go to colleges, there's a lot of different fellowships and ministries you can join. But for the high school grad, there's not a lot of institutions. Mm. And I do think that's a gap in in the way we, we try to institutionalize the faith. Yeah. Well, and part of that is it's you have a group of kids that age gathered when they're in college, but you don't have them gathered together when they're, when they're high school. You know, that, yeah. that, that's always been the, the conundrum. When it comes to uh, the sort of secularization that we see going on in the United States, I find normally that there are people having opposite reactions. Some people in my community don't take this seriously enough. 
And so they think, well, if you just if you just do the things we used to do more, then we can reverse this. And then there are other people I find who take it too seriously. And so uh, everything is apocalyptic. Faith is about to be uh, completely undermined. We have to we have to fight uh, like the devil to keep it uh, right now. Where do you see the church in North America going as it relates to secularization and the identity of, of Christian communities? I don't deny that secularization is happening. The rise of nuns is happening. I see it in my students where not only do they not have faith, they've never been introduced to anybody who did have faith, and they don't even have the moral categories. But I also see the church and even the Christian colleges, I see them as sources of great strength and possessors of great resources. Because if there's one thing this country is hungering for, it's some sense of spiritual wisdom. It's some sense of, of spiritual fulfillment, some sense that there is uh, some transcendent good, some ability to speak about purpose and meaning and good and evil. And the church has a legacy stretching back over 2,000 years of thinking this way, of orienting toward a good, of holding up a beautiful life. Hmm. And I can only say in my own, I talked about my faith journey in the book, and it was, you know, I grew up in a Jewish home and lived most of my life in a very secular world. Um, and the people who were most the most persuasive argument for Christianity were Christians. And I know that's a banality, but it's true. I ran into a guy when I was a young man who was um, who just radiated joy, became a Episcopal minister. And he spoke like a child almost, like he was filled with enthusiasms and pops and whistles. But he radiated a holiness that just was so attractive to me. Mm. Uh, and he dealt with some hard stuff. He spent six months of the year in Honduras, the other six months ministering to women who suffered from abuse. And so he'd seen the darkness of the world, but still radiated a grace and just an iridescence that I found magnetic. Um, mm. And that is, that's, a, that's a great resource that I think the church has and should feel confidence in. You used an interesting metaphor in the book about your uh, faith journey, and you, you talked about rather than having this specific moment of sort of losing an argument or or, or hearing a persuasive case, it was almost as, almost like being on a train, and you're sitting there doing what, what you're doing, and then you look around and realize that a lot of ground has been covered. When sometimes I think there are Christians who are really intimidated by people like you were, and, and what I mean by that is secular, very accomplished, very intellectual. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to Christians in interacting with people like that who maybe don't think that they have a, a need uh, to, to really have conversations about faith at all? Well, I mean, um, we're not all equal in how much money we make. We're not all equal in how strong we are, but we're all equal in the level of soul. <laughs> and every soul is infinite, is of infinite value and dignity. And somebody may seem super intellectual and somebody may seem um, super successful or somehow intimidating, uh, but everyone is equal at that level and everyone's approachable and everyone's vulnerable at that level. And, you know, since coming into this world, I have tried to be uh, thankful to all those who helped shepherd me in. I, when I was first uh, entertaining faith and faith was coming to me, or as Chris Wyman would say, the, the faith was that was latent within me burst of flame. People gave me books, and I was so grateful for them. And I, I joked that I got about 500 free books in that first year, only 300 of which were different copies of Mere Christianity by C.S. <laughs> Lewis. Everybody gave me that book. Um, but I, I tried to be a, an honest uh, new arrival and say that a lot of some people built 
walls that made it harder to be Christian, and some people built ramps, mm. making it easier. And a lot of the walls came from a combination of an, a spiritual superiority complex combined with an intellectual inferiority complex. Mm. And so some people would just, you know, some people tried to win me over for the team, which was not helpful. Yeah. Some people tried to get out ahead of where I was and try to drag me along rather than trusting in God to bring me along. Some people came with invasive care. Like mm. they would come up to me and they'd say, well, God put it in my heart to completely invade your privacy mm-hmm. and tell you how to live. And that that was not helpful. On the other hand, some people just, um, some people prayed for me, which had super powerful effect. Um, and then some people um, just waited. They waited for me to ask them the question. They waited my process. And then when I would ask them the question about grace or whatever it was, they would answer. But they would never try to lead. They would let God take the reins. Mm. You know, I remember a conversation that you and I had, uh, oh, it's been a long time ago in a gathering of people. It was long before our present political moment. And you you sort of went off on a, a little discourse about twilight spasms of incivility and, and, and sort of populist movements and socialist movements and so forth in a way that didn't didn't really seem possible at the time. And I think about it a lot, looking back on it now. When you think about the sort of extremism and division that we see not just in America politically, but all around the world, politically, economically, socially, culturally, do you think there's hope in the short term for getting out of this? Is this a short-term thing, or is this just the world that we have now going forward? Yeah, I I do have hope. Um, I read a theorist who had a a theory, which he called the ratchet hatchet pivot ratchet theory of change and it was that cultures face a problem and they solve it by uh, developing a culture to help them deal with that problem so in the 1950s and 40s we had to fight the war survive the depression we had a very group oriented culture then in the 60s we had we found that too confining so we got into a very individualistic culture and there was individualism of the left which is i can have my own lifestyle no matter you can't tell me what to do and there was individualism to the right, which was economic individualism. And that was maybe needed a bit, but we sort of run out the string and we're at the end of that culture. And there are some moments where you just chop up the culture. And those moments can be very bumpy. And then 1968 was such a moment. Uh, 1848 was such a moment. We're in one now where we're, we're just chopping up the whole culture, and, mm. which we have to do. But I have faith in human ingenuity, that people figure stuff out. They don't want to live miserable lives. Nobody wants to be in the sort of the hateful political moment we're in right now. And we'll find new ways. We're not going to go back to the conformity of the 50s, but we'll find ways to be community together, to be in relationship with each other. Uh, And, you know, I've spent the last two years with people who are building community at the local level. uh, And they're some of the most wonderful people I've ever met. And they represent a set of values that's the opposite of the individualistic meritocracy. They they don't live for money and celebrity. They live for moral motivation to be in right relationship with others and to serve some ultimate good. They're radically humble. They're radically relational. They believe in deep hospitality. And just being around those people, I, I think they are leading us uh, into the future. And, and my general theory of social change is that it's change happens when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. And frankly, that happened with the early church fathers. And it's happened a lot of times since. 
That's right. That's that's good news. Uh, the book, everybody, is The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life by David Brooks. I really encourage you to get it, even if you're not the person who says, I'm, I'm not really interested in the kinds of things uh, that, that uh, New York Times columnists might write about politically or economically or so forth. This is a book that will help you to understand your life and the lives of the people around you and your community, whatever way uh, that you're serving that community. David Brooks, thanks so much for being with us today on Signpost. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you. This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts.